I've sung that song all my life. It has a different meaning at 62 than it did at 6. It's what this is all about. Where we all hope to be one day. I am thankful for your offering, Teresa and I, the opportunity to be here and to talk to you about the work here. Whatever the outcome of that, when you go new places and you meet new people, even if you're just there one weekend, you don't forget them. We are thankful to the Palmers for opening their home and being gracious hosts to us this weekend. The thing that I thought about this morning that I was most thankful for as we got ready to go was Carolyn said, y'all can ride with us. You know where they live and how they would get here as we wound through cornfields and I think it was soybeans, I'm not sure. I began to think, you know, if she pulled up to a stop sign and said, the building's just right through that corn right there, y'all hop out. I had images of Teresa and I on a milk carton. Thank you. From the bottom of our hearts. When my daughter was 16 years old, I'm not going to tell you how long ago that was. It's been a little while. She got her driver's license. Those of you who have children old enough to drive, remember what that was like. She was our oldest child, and she was the first one to get her license. And she and her two brothers all went to the same school. My wife and I work a couple of miles apart, so... We would leave in the mornings before the kids did to go to work, and we kind of had to trust them to get up, a 16-year-old, a 14-year-old, and a 12-year-old, get themselves to school on time. I don't remember what time of year it was, but I remember distinctly that the time when I came home in the evening and my daughter said, Dad, I have something to tell you. And it was that tone of, oh, no, what's she going to tell me? And she said, I got a speeding ticket today. Now, you have to have a a clue. We lived in Morris, Alabama, which is, uh, might be 1,500 people. We lived out in the country. And they went to a county school, and it was along a lot of winding roads going over hills and uh, around curves, and about a five or six mile drive. And the speed limit on that winding row was 35 or 40 depending on where you might be so when she said I got a ticket I'm thinking how fast was she going and I tried to be the loving father and I said well we'll take care of it I said what'd you learn from that get ready sooner I said well good I said there's another lesson be late she had to go to night court uh, which is an experience all by itself. But we went to night court for a ticket, 
And we walked into night court <clears throat> in the little town, and uh, no surprise to me, there's all kinds of teenagers in that room. But I saw uh, uh, a classmate of hers, his name was David, and David's father. And David's father and I were friends because we had coached ball against each other when our kids were growing up uh, in the little uh, baseball park there in Morris. And so I walked over to Kelly and I said, what are you doing here? And he said, you know, he pointed to his son and, and said something like, knucklehead here got a ticket. And I said, yeah, Kerry got one too for speeding. And he said, no, 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 no. And I said, what? And he said, evading the police. And I said, in Morris, Alabama? And he said, that's what I said to him. He got home and, he, and I got home and he had the ticket and he said, Dad, here's what happened. Uh, and I think he'd run a stop, roll through a stop sign or something um, because there are no traffic lights in Morris, Alabama. So he rolled through a stop sign and the police, he saw the lights come on and he took off running. And the police didn't even chase him. They were just sitting in his driveway when he got home. And his dad said, son, this is not New York City. This is Morris, Alabama. They know who you are. And I began to think, and I talked to my daughter about it later. What did you learn about making decisions? You know, young people make a lot of foolish decisions because they think in the moment, here's what I need to avoid. But older people really sometimes are not any smarter than that. There are a lot of difficult decisions that we have to make in life. And young people, and I don't put myself in that category anymore, but young people have the most to make. Older people, their behavior is generally a pattern. They've learned how to behave, and this is how they're going to behave. Young people are still trying to figure it out. Now, that doesn't mean that if you're over 40, you can stop listening now. We still have decisions to make. And the question is, how do we make these really important decisions? And I'm not talking about, what am I going to wear today? What am I going to have for lunch? I'm talking about, am I going to be a disciple? Where am I going to live? Who am I going to marry? How am I going to raise my children? How do I decide how, how, to, how to approach being a parent, being a husband or wife? What kind of job might I want? What kind of people do I want to work for? These are the kinds of decisions that shape our lives. And because they shape our lives, they shape our discipleship. How do we make those kinds of decisions? We use all kinds of criteria, many of which are notions of worldly wisdom when we make those decisions. Sometimes we do things as silly as flipping a coin. Or I'll close my eyes and pick. And we think the most important decision that we've got to make is what color car to buy. When in fact that has very little bearing on our spiritual life. I want to look at a passage from the Apostle Paul in Philippians, the first chapter this morning. And we're going to spend most of our time in the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bibles and you want to open to Philippians chapter 1, Paul describes for us in this passage how he made hard choices. 
And there are lessons for us to learn about how to go about making those choices so that as we approach the end of our lives, we won't have regrets that far outnumber the wise decisions that we have made. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, the Apostle Paul writes this. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The critical phrase in that statement is where Paul says, so that you may approve what is excellent. To get a better sense of that, the Amplified Version, which I don't use very often, except to occasionally see how something may be differently worded, says, so that you may learn to sense what is vital and of real value. Paul is praying for them and he's saying, I want you to learn what's really important. I want you to be able to prioritize in your life the decisions that are most essential and how to make those decisions. That's what I want you to learn to do. And immediately after this prayer, beginning in verse 12, Paul gives this autobiographical account of his life and the things that have been going on as he demonstrates to the Philippians what has been going on in his life and how he has made some of those decisions. How do you learn to sense what is vital and of real value? In verse 12, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, I want you to understand, when someone reads verse 12, and the verses would not have been broken out in, in the letter that Paul wrote, but when someone reads that statement, they don't know what Paul's about to say. And he has said to them, I want you to know that the things that have happened to me, the choices that I've made, the circumstances in my life, have served to really advance the gospel. What if someone in this group, what if Adam stood up at the end of the service to do some closing announcements today and he said, I got some great news. Some things have happened that are really going to set this place on fire and we're going to turn this city upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you didn't know what he was going to say. What might you think? Well, somebody's died and left us a whole bunch of money. A local, a local denomination has, has lost their preacher and they've asked us to come and do the preaching there. That'd be pretty exciting. A young preacher has contacted us and he wants to come work with us and he's going to bring four families with him and he's independently wealthy. He won't cost you a dime. Okay, I'm not that person. But here's what Paul says in verse 13. So that it has become known through the whole imperial guard and to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. His imprisonment. 
Paul says, I want to tell you that the things that have happened to me have turned out to really advance the cause of Christ. I've been put in prison. Now what would you think if, if, if I stood up here this morning and I said, brethren, I've got some wonderful news. We're going to have a great opportunity to spread the gospel. Right after services, the sheriff's going to be here and he's going to arrest me and take me to jail. What would you think? Get a lawyer in here. Don't let this happen. But Paul says to them, here's what's happened in my life. I'm going to jail. And it has happened for the advancement of the gospel. That's kind of a different perspective. That's kind of odd that someone would look at that circumstance and say, why are you so happy about that? We wouldn't think that's really good news. And we would not necessarily see how that might advance the gospel. But continue reading. Verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So indeed, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, what? I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. There were a lot of reasons why the gospel was being preached. And Paul didn't care why. He cared that it was happening. He didn't care what the motives of the people were. He didn't care necessarily where they went. What Paul cared about was the gospel's being spread because his world is lost. Is that what you care about today? Because you don't have to look very far to see that the world is lost. And hastening toward, hastening toward destruction. would you care about more than anything else the spreading of the gospel? Is that at the center of your thoughts most of the time? How can we advance that? How can we reach more people? How can we throw more seed? Because uh, Jesus said in His time, and I can promise you it's still true today, the fields are white. There's a lot of people in this world who are looking for something. Are we looking for them? So I want you to consider Paul's decisions. How he got in prison. Paul didn't get in prison for driving too fast. Okay? And he didn't get in prison for cheating on his taxes. Paul was in prison because he chose to be in prison. It was a free will choice on his part. If, if Paul chooses to just be a little more discreet about where he preaches the gospel and not be so public about it, he probably avoids prison. He could have chosen to go underground. He could have decided that under the circumstances, I'll be a little quieter. I won't be 
as abrasive. I won't be as offensive. Do you think there are some circumstances in, in our world today where perhaps we're hesitant to say things or do things because we might offend somebody? Jesus said the gospel's going to offend. It's going to set father against son, mother against daughter. That's the nature of it. Jesus told his disciples, don't worry if the world hates you. They hated me before they hated you. They're going to hate you. Because when you present this message, it's going to convict them. It's going to say you've got to change. It's a desperate circumstance. And people don't like to be told, I need to do something different with my life. He chose to do this knowing it would land him in jail. Now, jail wasn't the goal, but he was willing to accept this extreme circumstance because of the opportunity it presented. He suffered while he was imprisoned. He chose to continue to preach. You know, even after they put him in prison, he didn't stop preaching. We know that because later in the book, he says that some of the household of Caesar responded to the gospel. He didn't stop. They threw him in prison for preaching, and that didn't shut him up. He kept preaching. And if you think about what prisons were like in that time, you know, this was not, he wasn't in cell block C where he had a, you know, 10 by 12 and a cot. No. A prison in, in that particular time when Paul was in prison in Rome, which is when he wrote this letter was probably a hole in the ground dug out of rock. There was one way in, a hole at the top. And they just lowered you in there. And they put you in there in chains. If you were lucky, you could sit down or perhaps lie down. But everything came through that hole. The guard, your food, water, human waste, animal waste, it was not the kind of place you'd want to be. It was an awful place to be. And yet Paul was there by choice. He could have just kept quiet about this. Once he's thrown in prison, he goes, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I'll stop doing this. And he can get out of prison and he can go back to, to preaching quietly. He didn't do that. He chose to stay there, shackled to the wall with no changes of clothes, no bedding, nowhere to sleep, nowhere to lay his head. Why would he do that? If you, <clears throat> if you knew a preacher of the gospel who was in such a circumstance today, what would you advise him to do? Keep your head down. Get out on good behavior. And that's not what Paul's trying to do. He chose to keep preaching, knowing that that would not advance toward his release but more likely mean that he would be imprisoned longer. What happened while he was in prison? Verse 18 tells you. Other people preached in his place. Some did it knowing this would bring distress to Paul. This is this is your younger sibling when you've gone off to college 
sitting on your bed in your room and FaceTiming you and saying, guess where I am? <laughs> guess what I'm doing? They needled him. They wanted him to suffer. They wanted him to know, we're free and you're not. Now some did it sincerely. And what was Paul's response to that? <clears throat> now he could be furious and he could tell his readers not to listen to those people, but he didn't do that. He chose to keep quiet and let the gospel be preached and not worry about the motives of the preachers or what notoriety they might gain or how it might impugn his character. He didn't care about that. He cared about the spread of the gospel. What might he have desired? Let's go down further in chapter 1. Verse 21. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to, to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. I have to tell you, brethren, he's got me right there. Because if by some miraculous means an angel appeared in this building right now and said to me, do you want to go to heaven now or keep preaching? I'm gone. I'm gone. And Paul said, I'm staying. I'm staying. He chose to remain alive. He had a choice. I can die and go be with Christ. You know, sometimes we're in distress, and we have certainly seen in the last 18 months or so that the real physical distress that some things can bring in this world. And perhaps you've known some people who've been in such physical distress that they have said, I just want to die. Or perhaps someone's circumstances are such and they just say, I'd just, oh, I'd just like to die. I just want to get out of this. And we know of thousands and thousands and thousands of human beings who over time have done just that. They are so desperate with the circumstances of their life that they take their own life. Well, most of us are not in a situation where we could choose to do things where we might die without really purposing to take our own lives. But Paul could have. Paul's in prison, and he's being mistreated all the time, and if he wanted a guard to beat him to death, I imagine Paul could have behaved in a way that was godly, and he could have been killed. He could have chosen to do that. He did not. He remained with the Philippians. Though he suffered more, he wanted to benefit them. A completely selfless choice. So let's summarize his decisions. Don't preach, likely be free, or preach and go to jail. And so by preaching, he forces the situation, and he goes to jail. When he's there, be quiet, probably get out of prison sooner, or keep preaching and antagonize the authorities through his preaching, 
he ensures he's going to stay in prison and suffer more. Condemn the selfish preaching of others or be quiet and let them prosper unjustly, but by being quiet, allow them to preach even for less than honorable reasons to people who are lost. Die and go be with Jesus or live and benefit the Philippians. And by choosing to live, he put off heaven. You think about that. And remained on earth and suffered to benefit the Philippians. How did he make those choices? Are those the choices you would have made? I got to tell you, I, I don't know. I'm not sure I would have made those choices. I hope I would have enough faith to. But Paul is bringing distress upon himself through completely selfless actions. He knows the best decision in every case. If he goes to jail, he's able to reach people that he could not have reached before. If he stays in jail, he can spread the gospel to people who would otherwise never hear it. When people preached in his absence, even out of pure of unpure motives, it brought people to God. When he chose to remain alive with the Philippians, he put off heaven. He encouraged and taught and wrote many more things that have encouraged saints for centuries, including us. He made the hard, hard choices. And sometimes our choices are hard. It's not what we want to do. It's not the most comfortable thing. It's not the most pleasurable thing. If I make that choice, I'm going to miss my family. I'm going to miss my wife. I'm going to miss my children. If I make that choice, I'm going to miss out on a really good job. I'm going to miss out on a really fun place to live. I tried to teach my children when they were growing up that when you have hard decisions to make, Examine what the easy choice is and what the hard choice is. And it's not always the case that the hard choice is the better choice, but a lot of times it is. And that's why it's a hard decision. Because you know what you ought to do, but you know what you want to do. Kind of like with my boys, you know, I told them, when you're making a decision about which girl to date, and one of them's pretty and one of them's ugly, what's the hard choice? I didn't really tell them that. And I obviously did not follow that advice. One more example, and this will give us the key in chapter 2. Beginning with verse 5, Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's a tough choice. That's a hard choice. But look what Jesus decided. He existed in an equal state with God the Father. Does he stay or does he go to earth? He emptied himself and came to earth. That's not an easy choice. He took on the form of a servant. Not God as an angel or a superman. 
He became like human beings, subjecting himself to all the pains of humanity. The Hebrew writer tells us he suffered in all points like we do, tempted in all points. He chose to die. God chose to die, and not just to die, but to die in the most painful and humiliating way that at that time a person could die. And he chose to let human beings put him to death. He didn't have to. Remember what he told Peter after Peter whacked off Malchus' ear? Put your sword away. I can call 10,000 angels if I want to escape. That would have been a quick battle. He didn't do it. He made the difficult, hard choice. Why did he do it? Well, he did it because he knew if he didn't do it, we couldn't be saved. And the central message of the gospel is God's love. John 3, 16. Here's the motive from God for saving us. He loves us. He made us and He loves us so much that His Son died on the cross to save us. He demonstrates how to make the hard decisions. A completely selfless approach. I want to give you a human example to tell you how simple this is to see for us. I was the youngest of five kids. And so I also was the most competitive. Because I didn't want any of my brothers or sisters to be able to do something I couldn't do. I had two older brothers and then two sisters. So when I was younger, uh, my brothers were off to college by the time I was 10, 11, 12 years old. So I was very competitive with my two sisters. And they were a lot smarter than I was. And we used to play games, particularly in the summertime when we'd be at home and you know, hanging for our mom, hanging laundry on the clothesline or, or shucking corn or uh, you know, shelling peas, the kinds of things we did in the summertime as kids. We used to like to try to uh, come up with brain teasers for each other. And one of the things I loved to do was draw mazes. And I took it upon myself at about the age of 10, 11, 12 years old to draw a maze that my older sister could not solve because to me, she was smart and I wanted to bring her down a notch. We weren't competitive at all. And I would draw these mazes and every time I'd draw one, I'd hand it to her and I'd think, well, I got her now. And five minutes later, she'd come back, yeah, it's fixed, yeah, okay. Well, one time, I sat down, and I mean, I had an idea, and I don't remember where I got it. It wasn't off the Internet. I was 12. But I got this idea of how I'm gonna, I know how I'm going to do this maze, and she will never figure this out. And it probably took me a couple hours, and I drew this maze on a piece of paper, and I said, you'll never figure this one out. Five minutes. Five minutes. I said, how do you do that? And she said, it's easy. You start at the end and go back to the beginning. I said, I never thought of that. She said, when you start at the end, there are no choices about which way to go. You can usually only go one way. That's how you do it. So how do we make difficult decisions? We start at the end. Where do you want to end up? 
What's your goal in life? Do you want to get to heaven? Do you want to get there worse than anything else you want to accomplish? Because I'll tell you, if you don't want to get there more than anything else in your life, you won't get there. And if you get there, and you remember back to the things you went through in your life, there's not anything that you'll look back on and go, well, I wish I hadn't had to do that to get here. But if you don't get there, it won't matter what you accomplish in this life. None of that will provide any solace or any comfort for an eternity of suffering away from God. Is that the most important thing in your life? Do you start at the end? If you want to make wise decisions, start where you want to end up. When those decisions come along, where am I going to live? Who am I going to marry? What am I going to do for a living? How am I going to raise my children? The question is, how will this impact my desire to be with God for an eternity? And if you ask that question when you're making the hard decisions, you'll make the right choices. Here's what Paul wrote in chapter 3 as he concluded his thoughts. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. That's the kind of thinking that motivated Paul and Jesus. In every situation, Paul's question was, what is the ultimate goal? What's the greatest benefit for the gospel? What should I do in this situation that will promote circumstances that will get the most people to heaven because that's what God's all about. Everything that God does for us, every act of providential care, every circumstance where God's hand is clearly in the circumstances that happen in our lives, every opportunity that is presented to us, God is doing one thing, trying to save as many people as He can save. That's all He's about. And that's all Paul cared about. And that's all Jesus cares about. And brothers and sisters, that's all that matters. That is all that matters. Is where we spend an eternity. Hard decisions start at the end. Where do you want to be at the end of life? How will this decision get me to there? Or will it impede me from getting there? And if it's going to impede you from getting there, it's an easy choice. 
to know what's right, it's not an easy choice sometimes to do those things. But making the right choices is first about identifying what the right choices are. And whatever choice I make, I want it to be about getting to heaven. Let's take out our songbooks, if you're using a book, or we'll have it up on the screen. There's a fountain free from Revelation chapter 7 that the Lamb is in the midst of the throne that shall lead them to living fountains of waters. Jesus told the woman at the well, and give you water so that you never thirst again. It's the kind of water I want to drink. Not on a hot day, but in a life where we are thirsty for these kinds of things. And the choice to drink that water and share it with others that Jesus had when he talked to that woman. And you remember her response. First thing she wanted to know is, where can I have this water? And then uh, I need to take this water somewhere. And finally she realized it's not actual water. It's what he wants to make my life. It's what Jesus wants to make your life. you got a hard decision this morning. If you're not a disciple, and you know whether you're right with God, Here's your decision. Is the most important thing for you to get to heaven? And if it is, what should you do? Let's stand up and sing.